you know there's a thing called Yacht Rock? Yacht Rock. I know of Lil Yachty. What's that? He's a rapper. Oh, right. All right. Uh, well, I, w- I wouldn't know anything about that now. That would be an ecumenical matter. <laughs> so what's, what, what's Yacht Rock? A man of I your don't age? know. I just heard somebody on the radio on... Um, what radio? ABC Melbourne. To? Okay. Right. Rock radio and Melbourne. Roll. Yeah, yeah. And who, who, who's a uh, exponent of Yacht Rock? I would say, say Christopher Cross, um, judging by this conversation. Like wiggity whack. Well, I just turned it on to, to come up here to pick up the kids and they were talking about playing the triangle and I think they were having a phone-in conversation with people about musical instruments they played at school. This guy phones in and says he played the triangle. Who's your favourite triangle player, they said. And he says, well, I couldn't think of anyone in particular, but there's some amazing triangle playing in the song Sailing by Christopher Cross. And, you know, I am a bit of a fan of Yacht Rock, he said. And I thought, does Yacht Rock mean... I, I just another name for kind of middle of the road soft soft star. soft or is it songs Last that are rock. literally about being in, on a boat that you listen to while you're on a boat I'm at a loss so we, we are sailing so, I, so anyway that's all that's all I, it's nothing Voyager there's, there's nothing Journey Rod Stewart <laughs> Atlantic Crossing Rock the Boat Baby Rock the Boat <laughs> no. actually it's quite a good genre yeah <laughs> we took it into it <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yacht rock. There you go. That's yeah. um, I would say there's probably a couple of the older members of my family would be quite quite into yacht rock. I think. Anyway, whatever. I'll let that one I'll let that one slide. Whatever. Um, Lawrence Dunar Ferry Rock. On the yeah. other hand, it's a whole other genre. It's a lot more grungy. There's a lot of banging doors, and um, you know, one of my prevailing memories of that ferry journey when it was an actual ferry, which goes from the south um, southwest of Scotland over to Northern Ireland you used to have a roll on roll off ferry the old style ferries and you get on there at Christmas I think I talked to maybe one of our guests about this you get on there on the Christmas holidays on your way home and it was just this heavy weather in every regard and you go to the toilet and there's water and other excretions so all over the floor and, the, and the cubicles the cubicles would always be conk conk these doors yeah, just yeah. kind of so yeah so yeah. Where are you are you are you in the like the communal bar what's the seating arrangement well of course it was smoking right so everything is smoky right yeah. and then there's just there's these uh, big lounge areas with these huge padded seats that are kind of crammed full of families trying to avoid the really drunk people who are <laughs> up either end the yeah. bars at either end and you go to the bars and they're just like stood out yeah with people they totally hammered i remember you, we used to get we used to go on holidays to Mallorca <laughs> and there was one or two other places in spain that we went when i was a kid and that was back when it's duty free there was smoking on the airplane or actually i think during my time, they made part of the plane non-smoking by putting up these protective, what do you call them now, very technical name, curtains. <laughs> and the whole back of the plane, imagine all these lads and lassies heading down to uh-huh. Spain for the two weeks. They've just got their duty free. 500 cigarettes. Into it. Uh, and like the Aer Lingus flight would land and the roars, Way! <laughs> They don't make them like that anymore, do they? They don't, they don't. It's a, it's a whole no, other... It only really happens in business class. Yeah. These days, yeah. Do you know? I, I never thought that I would be. I would think with any fondness about getting on a plane, but the last few months I have actually sort of thought I would mind getting a plane, you know, going somewhere. 
That goes Yeah. But I, like, I travel a lot for work normally. At least, I'd usually be at a town, maybe not overnight, but at least for the day, at least once a month, at least. I miss, I, I miss, I miss going to a hotel, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I really, I enjoy that part of work. Like, I know it sucks to be away from your family, but you have to look at what positives you can bring forward. There's something really nice to just relaxing in a hotel. Uh, well, so I, I kind of, I've always had a, I like hotels, at least with my wife who travels a lot. A hotel is, it's nothing special for her. She's just saying that. But that, to no, me. She's just saying that. No. She is just saying that. No, she I'm not, is just saying, as soon I, as the front door closed, smile on that face. Hold on. I'm not saying she doesn't like to get away from me. <laughs> I'm not saying that. But for me, just uh, being in a hotel is like, like, I like, I, so my kids, I are, my kids have stayed, in. my kids have stayed in hotels and eaten more restaurants in their eight years, yep. respectively, than I had in my entire first 25 years. Yep. Right? I mean, I had never eaten in a restaurant until I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 when my brother graduated as a doctor and we got to go yeah. to a restaurant. <laughs> um, not including not including family weddings. We went to some uh, some restaurant up around Balamina direction and my father um, took a great pleasure in saying to, to random passers-by, it seemed to me at the time, I'm just sitting in here having, having some lunch with my brother who's just qualified as a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, lovely. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a great, <laughs> was great. I remember, I can actually remember the, the jacket I wore. I wore a leather jacket. Of course you did. Handed down from one of the the other brothers. Had a belt. It was a brown leather jacket. Had a belt. The hung jacket the, had a belt. The jacket had a belt. Oh, had a, it was a jacket with a belt. Yeah. <sighs> the centre of the 80s. Spiffy. Spiffy. Did you have tips on your shoes? You know. Um, no, no. I had hand-me-down nature tricks. Which had come also that, from that brothers' nature tracks. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, they were, they were like, um, they actually looked a bit. So they, they were sort of like, they had a big kind of leather seam that went around them, like a bit like the seam in a hurling ball. And so it was really good if you wanted to kick somebody because you had this big sort of thick wedge of leather. But that to was the, the stylistic device <laughs> was the was the big leather seam. Anyway, I'm sure this is fascinating for our many listeners all over the world who. Yeah. Um, who tune in it's every week to hear us talking about our It's important to paint a picture choices. of, of Ballycastle in the mid-80s. What was happening? That's a, that's a thing that's lost. Was this a thing in your family with, with shoes that, like, for, for my parents, like, getting good shoes for your kids was massive. Stop. I'm a sneaker freak. I have loved sneakers all my life. First good, good nice set of sneakers I got was when I was an adult and I bought them my, myself. LA gear was pretty much it. The ones you got in Dons, which are like a ripoff. Right. How many gears are on them? Well, you oh. mean you didn't get any when you went up to get the fireworks? <laughs> up north? I bought it with my fireworks money. I said when I became an adult, right. I had my own money. <laughs> no, but it was just like you got your shoes and Dons, or like I don't even remember having Clarks. Not that I had bad ones, but it was just Clarks. Totally, see, Clarks was like. They're good uh, shoes, right? Are, well, so that's how, you know, I think there was a, there was a real. Status, status thing for my dad was to get you good shoes pa- apart from the fact that they would last as li- like he, they needed them to last a long time yeah. right and so you wore them till they were falling off your feet um, but we always used to go to Tommy White's this was the shop we would go to in the town which was the, the local shoe shop for local people <laughs> <laughs> or you could go to the very grumpy one up the hill which was Barton's which was this really small the soul of the town oh it was a it was a um they were very cross in there. Really? It was like it wasn't geared towards the the family market. It was more geared towards the um, the older clientele. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, 
But I remember when my kids were born, I remember my wife. I can't remember how it got to it. I remember standing there about to pay nearly $200 for two pairs of Nike that I knew were going to last two weeks. And I was just, they're two months old. I didn't I didn't get a pair of Air Max. And, well, not that they were right, but I didn't get a good pair of trainers for years. Yeah. Dad, I'm not complaining. I know last week you had to listen to me about smoking hash and this week now I'm bashing, not getting shoes. I'm sorry, man. You're going to have to stop listening to this podcast. <laughs> Look how you've turned out anyway. Uh, so, um, anyway, shall we talk a bit about today's guest? Let's do it. All right. It's something both a, myself and Tom are, are, are pretty chomping at the bit to get into. Yeah, today's guest is Michael Walsh, and he's from Manchester. He's a singer, he's a flute player, he's a whistle player, and he is the genius behind the album called Queer Hawk. It's his first album. And we talked quite a bit about that at the start. And um, we're going to break with tradition because we're going to play the title track of that album as our first track. Can I break yeah. with tradition before break with tradition? Mm-hmm. I'd actually suggest yes. if if you're inclined, you've got a bit of time, stop the podcast now and actually go and listen to the album or listen to at least some of the album. It's on all of the social platforms, or not social platforms, the streaming platforms. You, so you can just dip in without buying it and then later on when you love it go back and buy it because as much any any of our repeat listeners will know this is not really a review style podcast but myself and Dom love this album so much we just we stay talking about it for the majority of the episode so it's going to be great if you don't know about it but if you want this is a good chance to have a stop and then drop back in yeah and listen to or the rest of it. you know listen to this uh, first track that you're about to hear and and then uh, go from there so um it's just a brilliant chat and there's so much in it so we're just gonna go enjoy Remain ruffled because I am a queer hawk. 
Let them laugh over like go on and a cook We'll choose our own wings where the fairy or hope Because I was his choir hawk He made his own choir hawk I made my own choir hawk I am the choir Michael Walsh, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. Hello. I tell you what, what what a way to start. What a way to start. I mean, it's all there. A bit awesome. of drama. A bit of drama. First question. Where does the word Querhawk come from? Good question. Uh, I'm sure there'll be lots of places in Ireland that will claim it. Um, but I got it from my dad and uh, mum would have used it. My dad... Pat Walsh, he was from County Mayo, and he was a that fella's a queer hawk. And uh, so that's where I got it from. And it's a, a word that I felt had just sort of disappeared um, from usage. So I've got lots of friends in Ireland who are, you know, next generations, three generations on from my dad. And I just thought, oh, that's not there. And also I really liked it. And it, it can mean... Uh, something a bit odd or it can mean someone who's really clever or cute and cute and clever in a good way or a bad way uh someone who doesn't quite fit in it can be a compliment it can be an insult um it can mean lots of things to different people and uh i like the idea that it encapsulated the whole idea number one the album's a tribute to my dad as it turned out because he died during the recording uh and also it probably doesn't quite fit into the straight down the line trad flute album market no <laughs> when you were doing your market research that wasn't uh top of the list was it <laughs> yeah my panels were like what is uh, that i just yeah, want to ask so. Dom, was a uh, queer hawk or, or queer used in ballycastle yes it was used but but only as in um it would be i would have thought of it more as a as a sort of scots irish type word like a northern scots irish or ulster scots kind of word like queer 
Donner's a queer. That's a queer day. Yeah, yeah. But I've, I've not heard queer hawk before. Same, same. When I think of the act, like when I think of the word, I can hear the accent like much stronger, like queer hawk. But yeah, I definitely would have heard the word queer around Jada, like you know, he's a queer fella or whatever. Yeah. Go on, I was just gonna say since it since it did it, um, loads of people have gone. Oh yeah, you know, uh, a lot of people have gone. Oh, my dad used to say that, or my mum, or my gran used to say that, but they don't hear it anymore. So hopefully, I've brought it back into use a bit. You know, there is actually a guy, an artist in Ireland. It turns out who uh, a caricature artist who tweets as queer hawk. So where. Uh, it's not just bit me. Yeah, right. Actually, when I first saw the name of the album, I did do like a, a double take, wondering was that the the queer, queer hawk from, from what I knew it. When did you write that? I wrote it in the middle of or in the process of doing the album, and um, because what happened was it started off. If it should I give you the history, yeah. it started off as a straight down the line sort of calling card, I've packed my proper job in, I want to be a musician and academic, which have proper jobs as well, obviously, But um, and I, I wanted to just get an, an album out there that sh- demonstrated my flute style, which is Sligo style, learnt from a teacher, Marion Egan, learnt it in Manchester, sort of, um, you know, a bit raspy, rough old style. But And then, so I recorded... A little bit, and it was just going to be me and the beautiful David Kosky from I don't know if you heard the tune Mystery Inch. He's brilliant. He's on the Damon O'Kane and Ron Block albums. Anyways, he's my neighbour, mm-hmm. and uh, we were just going to do that. As it turns out, he didn't end up on the album. Sorry, David. But um, and then my dad died. He he went missing one day, and uh, we found him in the river, and uh, obviously that was quite devastating. So it sort of ripped my world apart, and. Uh, I was trying to, through the grieving process, there was long nights of grieving and I couldn't sleep. And um, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to have to write this down. So there was musical ideas and then the words were coming down. And it really made me think about, his passing made me think about relationships with him, my relationships with my son, uh, with other men. Um, And I wanted to try and... uh, encapsulate that and it made me think about how I fitted in in terms of gender sexuality identity and how I fitted in the trad scene or anywhere else uh and that that's what I did I just thought I blasted it down one night and that was it and I thought okay that's that's the start of my grieving process and communicating my ideas were they themes that you had engaged with before so ideas of identity sexuality uh, fitting were they kind of were they something that you had artistically looked at previously i think i think um yeah i think i think identity in terms of masculinity and uh my irishness and my mancunianness and then now living in sheffield and married to uh an english woman um yeah they were all things that i'd uh contemplated i would have spent a lot of time a good few years ago when i first started out working i was a, a youth worker in the irish community in manchester so i'd done a lot of work around irish identity I would have worked in youth clubs and we did a, a, a pack resource things like that you know so i would have done a lot about that did it in my master's degree about irish identity uh, and then this one when you start thinking about gender and sexuality probably the first time i really dealt with it in an artistic way because this is my first album mm. 
Um, do, do you mind me asking um, uh, what happened with your dad? Yeah, well, he uh, went for a walk one day and uh, he lived n- near this country park and he, he just went missing and uh, we found him in the river. So don't know whether it was a heart attack or drowned or a combination of the, the both. He was an elderly guy and he loved going out in for walks in the countryside and they don't know, they'll never know. He slipped probably having a look into the river and then we don't know. So that's 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 what happened. One of the things that, like the things that you've just touched on there, the ideas of uh, male relationships. I mean, the the album is just is is full of that, and it's um, I found it just so moving. I was telling Darren <laughs> when I first listened to it, I was just blown away by it. So, you know, thank you for <laughs> thank you for doing it. Oh, I mean, you're welcome. It's an amazing. It was almost necessary. Yeah. Yeah, so so um, there there's so many um, different aspects of this. I mean, um, I guess like what was it gro- what was it like growing up in Manchester? So like maybe we just start there with with the music scene. And for you, like what was your first exposure to music? My first exposure to music was I remember my growing up when I was really young. Uh, Irish music to me wasn't traditional music. It was country and Irish music. So it was Margot and Big Tom and Big Tom, People yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, so that stuff. Although my mum said, I never liked that Big Tom. But we, we had a lot of sort of, you know, that country and Irish, romantic, nostalgic music, which actually, it might not be very trendy, but I still love it. Still love it. Um, and People get a bit sniffy about it, but it's a genre in its own right, and it's actually the best-selling music in Ireland, so, you know. Oh, it, it's trendy. You just need to look in the right places, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, you know, there's actually a couple of people doing their PhDs on it, actually, looking at the sort of sentiment sentimentality of it all. Yeah, that would be an interesting read. <laughs> it would for some anyway. Yeah. So yeah, and it, but a lot of people are like, oh god, it's terrible. <laughs> so um, and then my mum came back from St Brendan's, which is sort of like an Irish centre Catholic club, with a Cayley band album vinyl and I said have a listen to that and she said do you fancy learning music and I went oh yeah so uh, like that and then um, I sort of mad into anything Irishy I was like yeah I'm Irish me you know so uh, I got brought to a couple of lessons at St Brendan's this woman called Betty Kelly and then I don't know what happened anyways those those lessons stopped and then uh, a few months later I was still very keen so my mum took me down to St Wilfred's in Hume which is a church in Hume, and uh, there's a teacher there called Marion Flannery, who later was Marion Egan, and uh, she was great whistle and flute player from Sligo. She's now based in County Mayo near Kilkelly. Hello, Marion. And um, she was magic, absolutely magic. Um, great whistle player, great musician, great fun, very inspiring. And uh, she made music lessons really pleasurable. And even though I was rubbish at practising, I was so lazy. Uh, she never gave up on me. So I used to go down there and we had those great, some fabulous musicians down there. Um, my big buddy that I grew up with is a musician called Angela Usher. You should check her album out, banjo album, another one produced by Michael McGoldrick. And uh, me and her were like tight unit. We we got on great. So, But Angela always practised. She was always good. She was a good woman. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, there was great, great musicians down there. And uh, that's where I learned St. <laughs> Wilfred's in Hume. Um, 
who who would be there? Some great uh, Kevin Madden, great fiddle player. He had a Sugarloaf Mountain album out a few years ago. Really nice. So we did that. Got playing Kaylee bands. Wasn't really that good at the competitions. Wasn't good enough. But there you go. That's my own fault because I didn't practice. It took me till I was an adult really to to apply myself. But I just really liked the whole thing of the flowers, <laughs> uh, the fun. Uh, we were a bit raggle taggle. Um, the old St Wilfrid's in Hume. Also, we weren't as smooth as the Londoners. You know, they all had nice Pringle jumpers and things. They're all very swish. <laughs> we were a bit rough around the edges. We had people like John Joe Kelly, you know, the Baron player, and Grace Kelly, and all them lot. All you know, great people, and their parents were brilliant. So we had a lot of fun there. My parents loved going to the flowers. God bless them. Uh, all that noise in sort of rickety schoolrooms. So that that was that was learning really, and I just really enjoyed it. And it was a social aspect. So yeah, that was a good experience. Uh, can I just ask? You said you identified as Irish. I think you put it as I'm Irish, me. Yeah. What was it that had that in you? Like, what planted that seed? What was the area that you grew up in? What was that like? Well, <clears throat> where where. Where we grew up, we were one of the few Irish families initially. Uh, we our sort of first three years was in Levenjoom in Manchester, the sort of the Irish area of Manchester, uh, and uh, my parents moved out to the suburbs. We got a bit posher, and um, so. But I think there was it was a bit of uh, a few things. Number right. one, the passion my mum had for music. She would have grown up in a very musical household. She wasn't a musician herself. She would have had like her neighbour who looked after was Margaret O'Reilly, who was one of the great ballad singers, won the All Ireland in the fifties and that. So she would have had a great grow for it, you know, great passion, um, <clears throat> and would be sort of missed home every day. I think really, even though she she liked being in England because it got gave her lots of opportunities. So there was that kind of thing. It was my mum had was really sort of the passion for the Irish thing. My dad, who was my mum's from Cavan. Hello, Nelly. My dad was from Mayo and uh, never lost his accent, always very proud of where he came from. But he was very much more like, you know, a little bit like what Trees mm-hmm. O'Grady was saying, the other, you know, had a lot of time for England because it gave him opportunities. He didn't actually have to leave Ireland. He had a job, um, but he just wanted adventure and uh, he loved England. And it gave him, I asked him once, we had this one conversation where after his brother died and we went to uh, the funeral, and we were driving around and I got lost on purpose with him because I wanted to talk to him. You know, he gets that stage in your life where you want to have them conversations about what it feels like to be a father, uh, what it feels like to be a man, all those kind of things. Yeah. So remember, get lost driving around near Carnacon. <clears throat> and the only time ever he, he expressed it all very quickly, he just said, England gave me everything I ever wanted. He said, uh, I met my wife there, mum. He said, I love you and... Your sister, uh, the only time he ever said that, he showed his love by doing things rather than saying it. Uh, and he just said, you know, you really need to make a whole lot of two halves. So it's that idea of, you know, be proud of your heritage, but don't look back all the time and be glad of where you grew up, which I thought was a really healthy way of looking at things. Mm. And it was, wasn't was always easy growing up because, you know, there was lots of good things about the country, but obviously in the 70s mm. there was the IRA bombings, there was a conflict between, you know, that was going on in Ireland. Um, so there was all that going on, like there was bombings in Manchester. So a lot of the time you had to have these strategies about uh, mm. when you were Irish and when you weren't. Um, 
and we could do that having an English accent. So, but parents couldn't. So there was that tension too. So there, all those things sort of formulated uh, yeah. your identity, and also listen to loads of country and Irish songs about going home to Ireland and how great it is. <laughs> See, so sort of, my six-year-old was going. Um, my, as a six-year-old was going, Margot, you've got it right, man. Oh, just yeah, I want to go to that ranch in Donegal. Mar- Margot, Mar- this is Margot's first first mention on a on the, it's taken us 73 episodes to get to mention a margo so that's uh we had filmina Mar- a few weeks margo. ago so you see i think i think a lot of us tradies are in denial but we do you know what when you get on a coach back from a flower and there's a few drinks going <laughs> the old country and irish can come out so were you going over to ireland often when you were younger yeah every year <clears throat> we used to go in the summer. <laughs> and what was um, your favourite, Cavern or Mayo? Um, I'm uh, joking. Neither. Neither, actually. Uh, well, by the time... Oh, I'm sad, everyone there. Yeah, it's good. No, we, we did. By the time we were growing up, uh, my granddad and grandma were dead. And so there was no one left over in uh, Cavern. And uh, so we used to go to Roscommon, near Carrick and Shannon, Roscommon, Leitrim border. So between Elfin and Carrick and Shannon, and uh, we used to go there every year. And then yep. also my my other auntie had a pub in Leash in Castletown, and uh, we used to go there as well. So they, they were two different experiences, running wild in the countryside and then hanging out in a pub playing pool. So they were quite good summers, you know. So, that, so then when you're in England, right, and you're a young fella, and you're, I'm sure you're not consciously grappling with these ideas of identity, but the love of England... Is that, I mean, in a way, that's a sort of subversive emotion to have when you're Irish in England. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's an interesting one, this as well, because if you talk to a lot of Mancunians, the same with Liverpool, that concept of Englishness, you know, there's another way of negotiating that. So we were, even I was sort of in the suburbs in Stockport, uh, Mancunianness is almost a nationality, so because it's because you've got that whole northern thing, that whole thing about feeling quite removed from London and the South, you know the posh kids and the Pringles, um, but also there is a sense in Manchester in general uh, about that Mancunianness, and people would say I'm Mancunian first, so a sense of Englishness or Britishness, it's there's a whole load of negotiation going on. So for easy easier for me, I would have always. D- I would have come to the conclusion saying I'm Mancunian first and I'm Irish then. So I'm Mancunian Irish. That's the sort of formula I came up with. But yeah, there is always a tension. Englishness, Britishness, it can mean a million things to different people. Same with Irishness. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I want to um, dig into that a bit, um, particularly r- relative to music. As well, because uh, one of the things that really comes through on your album is is a love of English music and uh, English folk music, and I, and yeah. I totally want to get into that. Um, but I was wondering if maybe we could have a tune, or uh, I don't know if you want to sing something, or yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, what would you like first, a tune or a song? You choose. A bit of tune. Yeah. I was going to play uh, Boys of Blue Hill, right, which is a tune I learned at St. Wilfred's. And then I was going to play the Stockport Hornpipe, Lovely. both tracks on my album Queer Hook. 
Uh, and then that sort of combines to the idea of the sort of Sligo-y and then you're going on to the embracing the Englishness and my love of English folk music. So the, the, a couple of tunes, so I'll do that. Um, first tune I learned, I first heard playing was a guy called Tony Howley, which was a great, great Sligo musician, one of the Sligo musicians who, uh, Sligo style, who um, was around Manchester, great musician, played sax and flute and tin whistle, you know, that lovely, lovely ballroom of romance thing. And I remember uh, him playing it down the phone, I think it was, to me. And I remember listening to it going, oh, how am I ever going to learn that? All oh, that lovely ornamentation. So that's where I heard that first. And I think my teacher, Marion, taught it me then. And then the second tune, which is the Stockport Hornpipe, I wanted something to represent my Stockportness or my Mancunianness and bring the two together. Because the album combines those two things with the stories, which we'll talk about later. So I use my uh, brilliant ethnomusicology research training and a Googled Stockport Hornpipe, <laughs> and it just came up straight away, which is amazing. And it's in Cola's repository of music, and it's housed in the National Library of Scotland. But there's only one Stockport that we know of, so I'm claiming it for Stockport. Which is a little town, just in case you don't know, it's a little town just on the edge of Manchester. Right, so I'm playing this old I'm playing on this old tin whistle that uh uh Sam when I was recording the album, Sam Proctor said, get a decent tin whistle. So this isn't the decent tin whistle because it's I don't know whether one of my kids have nicked my decent tin whistle. Anyways, this'll do, it's fine, it's an old five pound job. And uh Is it a generation? It's, it's a bit it's it's a it's a fed dog. Oh aye. It's not even a generate. I've got some generations flow. I like the old generations, but I, at the album, um, I, I used a Kalani whistle, which are really good, great value mm-hmm. for money, good quality. Oh, here it is. Oh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna upgrade, especially <laughs> for you lads. Oh. I wanted to have a conversation about generation whistles. You know the. Um, I've never known yeah. the difference between the the red top and the blue top, but I um, I remember when I first got a blue top one, and I was like, oh, this is a different. Different animal. <laughs> because the tops are the same because they're plastic, but it'll be about the um, material. The barrel, so yeah. Blue. So one one of the red top will be brassy. Yeah. And then the blue top will be a bit smoother. So I'm not an expert on this, but uh, that's I'm, I'm totally not an expert. But like my, my sense of it was always that the that the the more brassy one had actually a bit of a softer tone and that the nickel plated one had a had a bit of a harder tone but i thought the, yeah. the brassy one was an irish tin whistle and the uh the nickely one was a british <laughs> british tin whistle that's it's sectarian almost shows you, shows yeah, you or it I might know. be like full fat and diet milk so uh um but uh, yeah, no, I've got this lovely Killarney whistle so i might be in tune now which is quite good so uh yeah two tunes one Irish, uh, one, well, wherever it's from, and uh, the other one's Stockport Hornpipe, but it could be Scottish, who knows, but I'm claiming it for my hometown.
And there you go. Camp as a row of sailors. Um, you know, it, I, I think I've mentioned this a few times um, in, in previous episodes, but The Boys of the Blue Hill was a tune that um, there was an old arrangement. He used to live across the road from us right. um, when I was growing up. And he used to come over and he would deedle us on his knee. And that was the tune he used to lilt. It was the Boys of Blue Hill. Yeah, yeah. There was um, no labels on so, it. Um, he was a very, he was a very proud orange man. Yeah. He would march on the twelfth of July every year. He was always at the front with the white gloves on. He was the the guy with, one of the guys with the sword on the shoulder, and you know, lovely, 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 lovely man. Um, but it was interesting. You talk about negotiating identities and stuff. You know, yeah. Um, there was always this unspoken. It wasn't a tension between him and my parents or any of the, anything. It wasn't even. It wasn't a tension, but there was an awareness of difference. You know. Yeah, and and but but the traditional music didn't have a label as. No, it was just a chinny new. Been a, a yeah. brand on it. Yeah, I mean the Gary Reverend Gary Hastings and Desi Wilkerson to talk about that because yeah. of well, Gary Hastings is a Protestant vicar and Desi Wilkinson's from a mixed background of. Protestant Catholic, and they talked about that whole thing about negotiating that, and then how it became pretty tricky. And then some tunes. I mean, even if you think about Irish and English tunes, half the tunes have floated back and forward across as people have travelled round, and as 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 long as people have been able to read and listen to the radio and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's hard to stick a label on something. Yeah. One of the songs that, that kept coming back to my head as I was listening to your album when you were talking about um, exploring uh, what it means to be a man and exploring your relationship with your father and, you know, what it means to be a father and have a son. Um, so I was listening to your album and the song that kept coming back to my head was, you know, Mar- that Martin Simpson song, Never Any Good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like Martin Simpson. Martin lives here in Sheffield. Very lovely man. Well, that, that's uh, one of those amazing songs that, um, similar to um, a couple of the pieces on the album that just blew me away. And it was interesting, just that that song came into my head. And the other thing that came into my head was, um, I'm, I'm getting a bit down in the weeds here for anybody who hasn't heard the album, but um, um, the um, is it The Shores of Loch Bran? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On that, there's a cello about halfway through the song. And it just absolutely blew me away because it reminded me so much of a June Tabor song um, from way back from her album Abyssinians yeah. from the 80s I guess um, a song called The Month of January Right. I don't, yeah, know if you're, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with that but there's a sort of synthetic, there's a synthesizer kind of cello figure at the end of it and it just, those kind of echoes in the album they're all through the album and it, it just, it, it really kind of brought home to me how Traditions intertwine and memories and and echoes one thing echoes another you know yeah the, well I would have a great love of English um, folk song obviously I married a an English Morris dancer and great uh, my wife's a brilliant melodium player too so and uh, I would have I would have always before I met her I would have listened to it a lot you know I really really enjoy it. it's a very strong folk scene here in Sheffield. Uh, in fact, I've been working through Sarah's grandpa was uh, he used to sell records for the English Folk Dance and Song Society, and when he died, we we got all his fantastic selection of of 
field recordings and then also lovely, lovely albums right back from the 50s and 60s. So some lovely English and Irish stuff that I've been working through, learning a lot more songs. So, yeah, I've, absolutely. that And, the, yeah, the the whole... I didn't The cello thing, really, it's sort of listening to... Number one, there's that whole... What you're saying about the June Tabor. Uh, also... Uh, early, you know, the sort of when the chieftains started using the, the cello, um, and obviously, Dedanon, you know, in their their mm-hmm. sort of ballroom area, that kind of thing. So I've always loved cello, uh, and uh, luckily enough, should I tell you about my cello player? Yeah, yeah, cello player, right? So, uh, <laughs> cello player on my album. Is amazing called Liz Hanks, and there's your connection about uh, Martin Simpson. She was on the last Martin Simpson album, and mm. um, she lives at the back of me. I'm sort of looking at her green door, and uh, used to hear her playing the cello over the fence, and she used to hear me playing the flute. And then we went to play group with our kids, and we got chatting, and we we're like, "Oh, you're the flute player. Oh, you're the cello player." So she's very much from a classical music background. Also, if you listen to any sort of orchestral stuff coming out of Sheffield like Arctic Monkeys, Pulp, she's on it. Right, um, she right. runs the Up North Session Orchestra. And then if uh, so she's an incredible player. In fact she's that incredible. She's missing off half the album because she went off on tour with Liam Gallagher. So if you look at Liam Gallagher at Glastonbury, that's Liz on the stage there being ace. But she's my mate. And oh, I'm really glad you said that because you know I'd actually said this to Dominic earlier on when we were talking about the album. There was something, or there is something in the production of it that made me feel like it. It sounded quite Mancunian. Now I had no idea where I was getting that from. I knew there was something in the production, but I, maybe it's actually what I was picking up on was was the cello player. Maybe, probably, probably, probably mixture, probably a mixture. But uh, yeah, she she's hugely talented. Anyways, we started having a little busking in the kitchen and uh, there's a few of them actually on youtube of me and her playing in the kitchen which she always says i should have done the washing up but she's amazing and um so we just played more and we did a few gigs together and i just thought that's my sound that's what i want uh and she was you know delighted to do it fitting it in between everything else she was doing so that that's, she, that's- you make it sound like you've got this little um, what a neighbourhood, little village of of musicians, kind of. We have so at the back there, <laughs> at the back there <laughs> is Liz Hanks, amazing. If you go a few doors down on the corner, there's a brilliant, brilliant folk singer called Rowan Reinigans. Uh, if you ever get a chance to listen to her Red Dress album she brought up to Edinburgh last year. Anyway, she's brilliant. We had some lovely, lovely sessions in the garden we had over the summer. So yeah, there's a nice little crew of musicians around here the lad who mixed and finished off the album which i'll tell you about why he did had to do that in the end in in a minute um sam proctor who's brilliant uh i persuaded him to move from london his partner wasn't sure i've got them up one sunny day sat them in the nice area of sheffield which ours is all right and it was lovely and they went yeah okay so they've moved so they, i've got a recording studio around the corner now which is ace so yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's a nice little scene here, lovely stuff, you know. Uh, Martin Simpson yeah. lives over the other side. Uh, Nancy Kerr, James Fagin, uh, they live up. So there's loads, loads. Yeah, um, when it comes to actually um, um, working with somebody like Liz and 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 formulating your sound, I mean, it sounds like it was fairly, it was a fairly liquid process for you. 
Yeah, well, Would that be right? it 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 was fairly fluid. Um, again, fluid. That it, was the word I was looking for. Fluid. Um, <laughs> I t- I don't say fluid. A man of my age in a long interview, I don't say fluid very often. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, we'll move on from that. So yeah, it was. But I had. The, the whole thing about when it changed when my dad died and I was going through that grieving process, I could hear it all in my head. It was like I'd just lost the plot. And I had in a lot of ways because I was just processing all this shock because it was a shock because he, he died, you know, and we weren't expecting it. And it was quite a traumatic experience in disappearing and being found in a river. So it was, it was just there in my head. I can't explain it. I could hear it. It's the same with uh, the spoken word piece with Mike Gary, uh, the visitor. And um, I was struggling to find words. I hadn't written Queer Hook, the words by then, to find words to express what I was feeling. So, um, And I could hear Mike in my head. I could. Hear, I wanted that Irish sound, but a Mancunian accent. So, you know, funny you said about that Mancunian feeling. That's what I wanted. Uh, it's the same when I sing. I don't sing in an Irish accent. And if you want to do that, that's cool. You know, it, but it's not for me, even though it's a bit weird to play Irish music in an Irish style. Um, but but yeah, I could hear it all. So I could hear Mike and then I happened to know him. He's always on tour, John Cooper Clark and doing his own things. But I messaged him and he said, yeah, I've never done that before. Love it. Big Seamus Heaney fan. He said, yeah, I'm up for that. And then I could hear the cello in my head. I could hear the arrangements in my head. It was just, and I went, right, I wrote it all down and I got in touch with everyone and said, would you do it? And everyone went, yeah. The visitor, what a what an amazing, tender piece. It, it's just, um, I yeah. Yeah, I I love I love well obviously I love Liz Hanks playing the cello because she just breaks my heart. She's just got a a, a bursting now to record an album. Wait till you hear that solo album; it's going to be amazing. But uh, I loved what Mike. Uh, a few things, Mike Gary. I love his words because they're playful. So they're very sad and sincere. But, you know, the bit about shaving the eyebrow, was it dream, was it not? You know, it's sort of the things that dad, your dad winds you up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but y- you love him. Uh, and then I love the fact that if you go and listen to it, he talks about uh, them dancing. There's a moment where it goes into almost like they're waltzing around, a, you know, a, a dance floor in the 50s in Manchester an Irish yeah. ballroom, say the Astoria or the Sharrocks. And I love that way. You you, you recognise that your your dad was a, a man who fell in love and was a lover and there was romance and then the bit about being a parent. So there's lots of dynamics in that. Uh, the words, I was blown away. And uh, he just came in from London. He's always he's, he's, he's in London now, darling. But uh, he came up for a day and we recorded the, the vocal in Mike McGoldrick's house rather than his studio because Mike McGoldrick produced most of it with me. Uh, yes, yeah, so, and he just did it one off and we were just sat there going, oh, my God. So he's amazing. And then Mike McGoldrick, there's a lot of soundscaping. So what I wanted to do on mm. that piece, if you listen really carefully, um, there's a lot of soundscaping on it. So I wanted it to be like my dad's last walk. So you can hear there's a moment where it goes into the cello solo and you can hear the birds tweeting. Mike recorded that up in yeah. Scotland, actually, and then you can hear the, the foot on the gravel. So it's like that, a really 
it was almost like a healing thing that little bit i wanted to describe that feeling his last moments have been beautiful happy in nature so that's what that is and, and i think and then there's a little, a little sneaky bit which i really loved um mike mcgoldrick was in a session at the Chorlton irish club and he heard this man singing and he does he's like a little magpie and he recorded this man singing in irish so there's a little hint you can hear a bloke's da -da 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 -da. you just mm -hmm. hear him little vocal bit and that was lovely because that was like being in a, an irish club and having that moment of a sing song so he was almost like mem memory uh, sort of flashbacks to his life so that's the piece go and listen to it it's uh it's uh it's i'm very proud of it Visitor for James Hugh Gary. My father is with me. He visits me, calls to me from the dark, plays tricks, turning lights on and turning lights off. Changing channels on TV. Once, when I was sleeping, he shaved my eyebrow. I could feel the warm water drips from his fingertips. The soft, slow, scraping blade dabbing of his off-white handkerchief and a kiss a kiss so soft it might never have happened my father was a fighter hands like bricks Buckets for fists, hearts of fire glowing, golden flowing. And he loved the best he could. For he knew little of love and hungered the most basic of things, the very fundamentals. Dancer, feet like leaves on a breeze, he'd glide in and out and in and out and in. And he stole the heart of my mother with a single waltz, mesmerized her eyes and mind with a single dance. And she swears she floated that night just above the dance floor. And by the look in her eyes when she told me, Probably right.
loves me. He calls to me from the dark. He plays tricks, turning lights on and turning lights off and changing channels on TV. And once while I was sleeping, he shaved my eyebrow. I could feel the warm water drips from his fingertips, the soft, slow scraping blade and the dabbing of his off-white handkerchief. And a kiss so soft it might never have happened. So was it Michael McGoldrick that produced it with you? Mike, Mike co-produced it with me. Because um, for a first album, I mean, you landed it with such confidence. It really feels like your multiple albums in. It, it, it's kind of got a very confident, definite hand to it. And I think a, a large reason for that is the fidelity the the audio production on it really enhances the music on it yeah i was lucky obviously i had had mike who knows his stuff um and he's just really like we we've known each other but we hardly ever see each other because like i've been living in sheffield for eight years and then i might see him if he comes and does a gig and says hello and you know so we wouldn't spend a lot of time together over the years although we know each other you know uh and that was actually quite a good thing that we weren't too close because you got a bit of separation, and uh, but I knew he would know, he would understand it all. He's really clever. He's really good in the studio. He's really sensitive, you know. To he, he just got what I was trying to do. So he was brilliant. So we used to go over late at night to his studio because he works in the evenings. Travel over. So we did a few then. That was really nice. And then he pulled it together. Did things like the soundscaping on the visitor, and then when. Mike Gary was up, he, we did it in his house. Uh, and then he went off with uh, Mark Knopfler on tour. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Mark, I'm doing Mike's album, so can't go on tour with you. Uh, no, obviously it went off. So to, to wrap it up, we did a couple of things. We did uh, the England's Motorway. Um, I recorded that with Tom Wright in Sheffield, and that was lovely because me and Liz just... Got in a taxi. In ten minutes, we were in the studio. Uh, but that's another. That's another like incredibly tender um, description of a of a son's relationship with his father, and it yeah through the the voice of the mother. It, yeah, for me, that like Hugh McCall's, and he's sort of an interesting and controversial character because you know people might accuse yeah. him of being a bit sort of you know because. He wouldn't have lived that experience, but I thought he was a very clever guy in terms of understanding. And in some ways, that was part of trying to find the way of describing my relationship with my dad. Some bits of the song don't apply. My dad very rarely went away. He was a home bird, so very, very rarely, unless it was absolutely necessary, he was at home. Even if he was in London or Birmingham, he'd travel back. He's just like being at home, and he, he family was very important to him. But it, it sort of, there was that idea of my dad worked on England's motorway, the M1, that's what it's about. 
Um, and also that the song is very nostalgic. So I put it in a different setting. So I work with Tom Wright, who's an English folk producer, Magpie Ark, and he's done some really good stuff. Martin Simpson's producer. Again, Sheffield, it's a very small place. Uh, but he, he did the, think the idea about sampling whistles to make it very sort of metallic and industrial, you know, because they were hard places out in the motorway. And then that mixes in. For me, that song isn't really anything to do with you and Colin. In fact, I've missed a verse out. That's a country and Irish song that I heard, even though it's a Ewan McCall folk song. It's from the radio ballads, you know, which are really worth listening to. But for me, it was a, a song I would have heard, I don't know, Margot again or whoever uh, singing it. And it's just nostalgic and it just reminded me of waltzing around uh, the Irish Centre in Cheatham Hill or you know St Kentigans or wherever with my mum. Um, so there was that aspect to it, but it was a grieving thing. And in fact, the, the vocal, it was very broken in lots of ways because it was the hardest thing I've had to sing. I was, it was first time back in the studio after dad dying and uh, yeah it was quite a, a tricky one so what we left it it's nice you know it's a bit raw but before we move away from the album and the production of the album i just wanted to ask you about the the first tune and the second last tune the there were the tunes that were recorded directly to the acetate with a lathe from from memory um what yeah. was the what was the logic or the reasoning what led you to to making that choice well well two things number one again someone i was lucky to know lots of people because i suppose i've been around for years and i like a party so i've got a new lorna fulton uh from the lave revival so if you have a listen to the lave revival.com they've worked with some amazing people um, and it's a, a project to recondition and reuse uh, vinyl lathes, so all sorts of old recording equipment. Um, Lorna's a, a, a project manager, like she ran the Cultural Olympiad in the North East, that kind of thing. So it's, it's a hobby, a passion. Me and her have been mates for years. So uh, I had this, I was sort of thinking a lot about the album. I was thinking about, I was listening to a lot of stuff, you know, some of the old. Irish recordings in America. Um, mm -hmm. So that's uh, exactly what it put me in mind of. <laughs> yeah, Morrison and people like that. In fact, there was there was there was a Michael Walsh flute player. If you look up in the nineteen thirties and twenties recording, um, oh my God, Michael Coleman. In Michael Coleman's best man, as it turned out, was called Michael Walsh, and he was a flute player. And you can hardly hear him, but if you listen to one of the recordings, so I, I like the whole idea about. The queer hope thing, there's a sort of a narrative arc. So it goes through various bits of my life. Uh, concept albums are hugely unfashionable, but hey, you know, I'm going to do one. So I like the I liked the idea of looking back to the roots, you know, uh, and a lot of our roots aren't just this idea of in the countryside. A lot of what tunes we would have learned and those styles, they came from the recordings that came from America that were done in the 30s. You know, so that idea of mediation of music and it was, had a huge impact on Irish music back in Ireland. You know, of course, you've just given me goosebumps. I hadn't actually thought about it in that way. It, it's so simple. Yeah, and then luckily enough, I knew uh, Lorna, and then it was a good excuse then to go up to Newcastle. And then I've got Amanda Lewis who plays the fiddle on it. It's one of my favourite fiddle players, but like me, she's got kids and busy so we never see each other so i went right okay i'm going up 
uh, do you fancy playing some tunes? So it not rehearsed or live. You only get one shot at it. And then also I brought this lad called Paul Daly, who's my man wife, my, my flatmate at the time. Was he my Oh, no, that was... That was that was my former flatmate. Anyways, my mum, my amazing flute player from Balladrines, an architect in Manchester, learnt from my teacher, but in Ireland when my teacher went back and uh, just loved playing with him. So I uh, said, right, come on, <laughs> chance we'll dress up. There's a video of us pretending to be in the 1930s. And, uh, and uh, yeah, we went up to Newcastle and then set the lathe up in this office block and uh, just recorded it straight to it. So it's very raw. And it is what it is. And in fact, if you hear the end of the album, towards the end of it, uh, lathes are notoriously difficult and it starts squealing a bit and you've got high-pitched things and that. But I like that. So it bookends the album. So that that's what that is. But it's fabulous. They've done like, like the uh, Cheatham and Lotham have done a whole album recorded on that. Uh, Martin Stevenson. There's loads of brilliant stuff. So uh, latherevival.com, I think it is. Have a listen to their, that. So that's what that was about. Thanks for that. Do you think we could have a tune? Yeah. All right. Let's have a go on the old. Um, or a song. Your choice. We'll have a song. Let's have a song. Should we do that? Um, I'll do my greatest hit. Yeah, great. I'll do uh, Shores A Lot Bram, which is on the album. You could talk about it afterwards if you fancy. So this is this is a song called Shores Of Lot Bram. Yeah, let's do it. And... On the album, it's sang in three languages, Astorian, Irish and English. Uh, and sang in Irish with Rena Conley, the amazing Rena Conley is my mate. Uh, and then Leticia Gonzalez from Astorias. And uh, I'll explain the story okay. in a bit, why they're all on it and the relevance. So this is a song I learnt from my... Uh, learnt Sort of by osmosis from my uncle Frankie. So go go to Ireland every s- summer. Be sort of few partying. You know everyone does the little party piece, and Uncle Frankie might sing this because it's Lot Brown is about three miles, two three miles from my auntie's farm. It's on the road between uh, Leitrim Village and Carrick and Shannon. If you want to find it, this, this whole place. Uh, and uh, I thought I'm going to learn the whole song because he'd forget the words. Maybe sometimes. So that's how. And then I heard people like uh, Mark Sebastian singing it and Dolores Kane, so they would be the influences on this song. <clears throat> Sit you down, loyal comrade. Sit you down for a while. For I've spent my last hour on Aaron's green isle. Come fill up your glasses And we'll drink hand to hand For tomorrow I'll be leaving My home by Lofran No more will I wander Round Farner's Green Hill Oh, the place I loved fondest The bound by the mill And the green fertile valleys 
so oft times I run to inhale those sweet breezes round the shores of Lochbran. There's my father and mother, I can still hear them cry. And the tears and bewailing Would moisten my brow But I will attend them Please God if I can Far, far from lovely Aaron and the shores of Lopran. On the incoming morning, I will bid you adieu. From Leitrim, Drum, Shambo, and Sweet Carrick too. But no matter what fortune, I might meet on my way My thoughts will be with you By night and by day My thoughts will be with you While life holds its span Far from lovely Erin and the shores of Lovebran. There you go. Uh, thank you so much for that, Michael. Um, what I want to ask you, and I hope this is okay with you, um, what I want to ask is around sexuality and yeah. The reason there's several reasons why I'm asking you, you brought it up a few times in the conversation so far. I follow you on Twitter and on your short bio in there, you yeah. list um, that you're bisexual. What I wanted to ask you was what role does that play within your life, or, or what does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? So, the I think in the uh, referred to in the queer hope poem saying, You're uh, I'm not straight enough for you, I'm too straight for you. Uh, and then a big gay mic. So I talk about how, what people, what so it's a lot of chatter about. You know, people are always intrigued by other people's sexuality. You know, whether straight, gay, polysexual, pansexual, bisexual. Um, and yeah, it was obviously something I considered as I was growing up. And you, that whole idea about queer hope that you don't quite fit in. So I, gay friends saying, oh, you're obviously gay because. You know, you're just some quite a flamboyant, effeminate man in lots of ways. Uh, but attracted to men, but attracted to women too. And then, you know, not straight enough for you, especially growing up in a very macho Irish community. You know, that had its challenges uh, too. And at school too, Catholic school, they wouldn't deal with homophobic bullying or anything. Um, so... As I grew older, sort of, uh, you come more comfortable in, in your own skin, and that sort of sort of. If if there's any label that would uh, I find useful, it would be that I'm bisexual. Now, it's not that I want to go around waving flags, is but there's the the thing is there is still homophobia, biphobia, um, 
I think I've described that in what I've just said previously. Uh, and I think it's important for, I'm in a quite strong position because I'm a, you know, I'm a white male, quite old, and uh, I don't mm -hmm. owe anything to anyone. To stand up and say, this is what I am. Uh, it's, in fact, I was, I was talking to a couple of other, uh, another uh, singer who's gay, and he was saying that that, he was reading my article that the Irish News did, the interview with Robert McMillan, and he was saying it's like it's it's still a taboo, you know, because people just can't fit you in a box. Because at least if you're gay now, people can go right. Gay uh, homosexuality is is legal. Yeah, I get that, but yeah, it's, you're copying out. Or why can't you make your mind up? But it's really important to say this is actually uh, who I am, and that sexuality is. I think it's a sort of What's, what's the thing? It's sort of a a gradient and it can move people. It's the same way as a heterosexual person might feel uh, very heterosexual at times or not feel any sexuality at all because they're not interested in it at various times. That changes in your life. And I think it can shift. And for me, that it it it, it feels like that. Uh, and uh, I fell in love with a woman and uh, she's amazing. And uh, I'm very happy with that. And then my kids, you know, we talk about it with the kids so they can make their own minds up. And it's just saying this is me. It's 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 a a, a thing that exists. I'm proud of it. Uh, let's just get on with lives. And if it helps some younger people to go, well, actually, that's a bit, that's me. And actually, since I've talked about a lot more open, because obviously I wasn't in the media a lot before I did uh, this music. I was just getting on with my life as a, professional running children's services and um, quite a lot of people have come up to me and gone yeah that's me too well, i'm glad you said that because and in the world of irish music too i've said i'm glad you said that because that's me but it's taken me a long time because not only dealing with if you've got uh, attraction to the same sex but if you're not fitting in because you're also still attracted to the opposite sex so it's a, a big journey for a lot of people and i'm glad i've talked about it because i know for a lot of people, they've gone, yeah, that's me, and it's made me feel a lot more comfortable. But I've also had a lot of people saying, I still can't say it. They can't, well, they can't say it aloud because they'd be worried about people's reactions. You know, and in the world of traditional music, there's a lot of wonderful people, uh, uh, but there's also a lot of people who are still very small-minded. And obviously because the whole thing with the Irish music and the whole nation-building thing, and it was tied in with Catholicism, uh it's a big part of their Irish national identity construct has been Catholicism, uh, Devil Ears Island, all that kind of thing. So yeah, it's it's that's a whole big thing about uh, if you play traditional Irish music. Very often there is there is a whole aspect of your expressing your Irishness. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it takes time to move on and shift and some people will never be comfortable and there are some elements within the Irish traditional music scene who are very extreme right wing I've got no problem with people's religion respecting do whatever you want uh, but yeah it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky one you know uh, and it needs to be spoken about because people need to feel comfortable and get on with their own lives and and if there's, there is a you know for a lot of people there, there is discrimination still what what was it like for you then when you were a youngster finding your way into your own sense of yourself sexually 
in, in this context of being in, in a fairly macho traditional culture, myself and Darren have spoken about this back yeah. and forth. Well, I, I was I was a sort of pretty uh, pretty effeminate little boy, uh, mincing around quite a lot, and uh, yeah, so I got called puff, fag, and all that kind of stuff. And then just to add to the uh, to the flames to the fire, a bit of petrol to the flames, uh, I went and became a hairdresser when I was sixteen. Right. God knows why. And it wasn't even to do with sexuality or gender or even an interest in hairdressing. I just thought, oh, that'd be interesting. Don't want to go back to school. So I went and did that. You just like being on your feet for 10 hours a day. Standing up, mincing around and talking. I was really good at talking. And and, and, and that I was terrible at hairdressing. Oh, Christ. I messed so many people. My poor mum. Mum. I know my cousins and my aunties. I'm really sorry. So uh, I wa- I wasn't great, and after two years, it was an interesting time working in the hairdressers because it was during the miners' strike, and you know, and me and my boss used to have these Thatcherite, and we'd have these big political arguments, but no, really good. And in the end, after about two years, he said, "Do you know what? You really should go back to college and use your brain. You know, you'll always be an okay hairdresser, but you, you know, you've got a brain. What? Just go and use it." And actually, I'm quite grateful to that man, even though I didn't agree with his politics. So I, I. I went back to college and then went off and did a degree and uh yeah so there was that that yeah. kind of thing um so that and actually it was quite easy to mince about in the hairdressers obviously so it was a mixture of all sorts of people being very flamboyant great fun uh but maybe didn't sit that well in the Irish community although it was okay I think sometimes also as well you feel like you're on the edge but that can be you doing that although some of that's a reaction to people's reactions to you Mm-hmm. I remember having this conversation about feeling I was always on. I think I put that in there. I think I was always on edge. I always felt like I was, but someone else is saying, "No, you're right in the middle of it." So some of it can be that. It's it's quite complex. Uh, then when I got to about sixteen or seventeen, I was playing with Saint Mal. I played a bit with Saint Malachy's Gaily Band. Brilliant, brilliant group. Uh, the we won the All Britain and went off to the All Ireland. Some great musicians followed me there, like Kevin Madden, and then. Later on, the Farrell brothers, Colin Farrell and uh, John Drew Kelly, all them, like the next generation down joined it. So it was, that was a brilliant, brilliant thing. Mm-hmm. So I did that and, uh, yeah, I got, got a bit of teasing, but the people there were really, really good. Uh, and then I sort of went off and uh, I went off to Sheffield then. I went off Sheffield to Sheffield City Polytech, Polytechnic for the harder thinking and uh, just got into the trad music scene there which was very different because it was more folky pub orientated and uh no one really cared there about my sexuality or gender they weren't you just played and everything you know it was Mm -hmm. was sound so i was kind of away from the irish community then for quite a long time and i dipped in occasionally so that does that answer your question in any way well in in part it does but it, it the the sort of intersection between notions of Irish identity and expectations and then notions of sexual identity and conformity and other kinds of conformity in this in this sort of traditional Irish music arena I mean that that's that's something that I think myself and Darren have both been sort of wrangling with since we started this project like what does it even mean to 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 claim some kind of Irish identity or Irish heritage, even aside from any anything else? You know what I mean? Yeah, and what is I mean that for me has evolved over time. You know, 
Um, and then also that whole thing now, because I've got kids, I've got a son and a daughter who are amazing children, and talking to them, so they're, they're, their heritage, and I don't, so I'm, I'm sort of Irish Catholic background, mum and dad, and they're, and my, like, my granddad was an IRA volunteer, so he got that whole thing, and then my wife Sarah, her family, sort of go back to Scotland, her, her granddad was a, a ranger support from Glasgow, and then they're all sort of Scottish, you go further back. So that I, I always think about uh, the conversation that my granddad and her granddad might have had, and then having those start mm -hmm. to have those conversations with my kids about it. it to be, it's a lot easier to be Irish now, to be honest. It's a lot easier. For, growing up in the seventies, it was a bit testy, um, but for them to dip in and out of it and talk about it and look at it, it's it's uh, it, it's not as problematic i don't think how how do you um approach then raising a son in an environment where there still are like really strong prevailing macho attitudes and expectations about maleness that that aren't necessarily ones that you want your son to grow up with i'm speaking i'm speaking myself of just you know i live in australia there's obviously it's a very complex culture but there are aspects of it that are very macho and and figuring out ways of explaining to your son how to resist that or how to form his own um his own self without that do you know what yeah, i mean yeah yeah i lovely when i went to uh when I went back, I was just thinking, when I went back to, I went back, that was an interesting word, when I went to Ireland a few years ago and I brought, I think it was my son or my daughter, into the little shop in Carnacon, Mike Willie, the guy who runs the shop, and I said, who does he look like? And he said, he's like himself. And I like that idea, you know, to not get too tied up in mm. other people. He, it uh, turns out, well, masculinity, femininity, uh, and also with my daughter and how I behave as a man too needs to be considered. And we've actually talked with a lot of my mank mates. Uh, we were talking about it a few months ago when we managed to get back together about how we've not just with lads, but how we behave as men with, with our daughters. So that whole shouting thing. And, you know, some of the women were saying, you know, we really challenge our husbands because if you get into a big shouty thing, that that's that whole thing of, are you conditioning young girls to accept that they should be shouted at by men and that it's okay. So it's a real, and it's been a big challenge for some of my more macho mates uh, too. Um, my kids... I'm, you know, it's funny, look, I... I, I no, I was just going to say, we, they, they met the joke, because my, my wife's sort of like strong, clever academic woman, very good at fixing. She, she, she'll have the toolbox and I'll do the feelings. That might sum it up a little bit. And when I, I sort of joke and say, I'm the alpha male, and they go, Dad, you're not the alpha male. Mum's the alpha male. Um, <laughs> so they... Sounds very yeah, like my house. That's, that's, that's all right. So they, <laughs> they've got a good selection. So they've got, like, look, we've got Grandad Bob who comes from Whitby, <laughs> and he's very practical. That's that's Sarah's dad. Uh, so they've got those kind of role models. We live in a little... Mearsbrook, the area that we live in in Sheffield, it's very... Uh, it's very gentle bit hippy dippy uh you know 
it's it's uh, there's a lot of men. I, I make a joke about my thin wrists. My dad used to hide his thin wrists on the web on the building site because he was always very conscious about it. Have a long shirt on, but I don't mind having thin wrists. And uh, you mentioned that though, like. Sorry, yeah, I was just going to say, there's a, I joked, there's a lot of men with thin wrists pushing prams with peripatetic careers where we live. You know, so there's a lot of women who've got very powerful jobs. And a lot like me, I give up my old career quite happily. And there's a lot of art, artists around here and sound engineers and all sorts of people like that. So they've got a lot of different role models. Also, they've got a lot like next door, our, our lovely neighbour. Hello, Gary. He's proper Sheffield bloke. And, you know, so there's lots of different role male role models for my kids to see and they can make their own mind up in the end and i think my perspective on it is they can be like themselves and if they've got a question i'll answer it as honestly as possible mm-hmm. do you find yourself um displaying aspects of your own parents that you rather wish you didn't yeah well that's interesting my dad was very gentle so it was actually called, we called him Woof because uh, one day uh, he was going, he was giving out about something. He didn't shout a lot. He was a very, very gentle guy. And uh, my mum my started going, woo, 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 woof, woof. Uh, and then my, my, <laughs> yeah. And then my nieces, who are now adults and parents of their own, picked up on it and called him Woof. So he became Woof. So to everyone in his area, he's called Woof. So, but we had very, he's a very, very gentle man. He was tough. I spoke to his, it's interesting because he didn't speak a lot about feelings and things. Um, but I spoke to his mates when I went out and worked on the building sites in the summers when I was a student. And they talked about how tough it was in the 50s and 60s when you wanted to get on the right lorry. There'd be people punching each other, you know. So, you know, he was a t- tough lad, but uh, very, very gentle. So, yeah, uh, I... Yeah, I, I would put it. Yeah, it's it's good to be gentle, but there's a danger. I'm not saying this is my dad, but passive aggressive. So, you know, you've got to stand up, especially in a relationship, and you've got to say your piece. And sometimes I'm a bit sort of laid back about things. So I'd like to be less passive aggressive. Um, and my mum, I'm very much like my mum. Get the music from my mum, the drama from my mum, the warmth from my mum, uh, the hot-headedness a bit from my mum. Uh, so, yeah, they're brilliant. Both my parents, uh, but like they would say that mum would say, you know, we're all sort of uh, works in progress. And your mum's still your mum's still alive. Yeah, to be listening yeah. to this, Nelly in uh, she's from Gowner. How you going, Nelly? Have it. Hiya, Nelly. Yeah, she's great. She's at home knitting and raging at the Tories uh, and isolating that, herself. Nothing better. <laughs> she's great, my mum. She was the one who got me into the music. My dad brought me to the flowers and things, but really he liked silence. That was his favourite thing. But mum was mad into the music. She would have had great musicians and singers in her house and been surrounded by it. And uh, I love, I can't do it now, obviously, because lockdown things, but one of my favourite things is going to gigs with my mum. Like my mum's seen everyone you can think of music-wise. My mum would go to, him, go, go to the gigs as well. And he used to love it. And then our sort of thing that we used to do in late years, we'd go to Christy Moore every year at the Bridgewater Hall. But obviously that's that's all... Mm-hmm changed now so yeah she's she's great and we still talk about music and politics and uh we swap things or send her a cd or and she's obviously very proud of the queer hawk album she loves that and then she keeps giving them away to her friends <laughs> sell them mum she goes oh yeah oh i saw bridie the other day and she'd love one for her son who's not feeling well I'm like, oh all right then go on yeah 
<laughs> They'd be feeling worse when they find out you charge them ten pound for it. She's probably been selling them without telling me. She's probably... <laughs> yeah, yeah. You might you might get yeah. an extra few bob in your uh, your Christmas cards this That'll year. That'll be huh? it. Yeah, yeah. They'll be on. She'll be on eBay. Oh, I must check eBay see if she's. Been... Um, do you reckon we could have another tune? Yeah, because uh, yeah. I, I want to ask you a little bit more about. I want to ask you a little bit about nationalism. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just quickly about nationalism. Yeah. Yeah, just just a quick five minutes. Nationalism, and then maybe we could talk about my love, my Astorius that I spend loads of my time doing on my PhD. But, oh, yeah. I want to. Yeah, I was kind of leading into that, and and Kepa. Oh, Kepa, Kepa. Right, Yeah, we'll talk about that. So, uh, a play, a play. Uh, I've given you some sly going English. I'll play an Astorian tune. Okay, brilliant. So, and I'll do one that's not on my album, so you're getting this free. Okay. Okay, this tune is called... Uh, it's called Muñera de Rengos. Unieres uh six eight little bit like a jig, but it's not a jig. Don't don't call it a jig, right? I would never call it a jig. Jig, and there's a difference because they 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 emphasise this anacrusis, which is like the upbeat. The yada you got to miss that. And what they say is that when Irish musicians, there's quite a lot of Irish musicians have recorded it, uh, very often, but not all of them. Uh, miss the anacrusis and they flatten it it's a little bit like a lot of the changes in irish music they make it sort of a little bit more irishy so where does your connection with uh, asturias come from my story just an accident really uh so the story is the astorian story is um Again, Lorna Fulton, the woman who ran the who runs the lathe revival, many years ago, she always used to send me music, and she sent me this CD by a band called Tejedor. Uh, and Tejedor's like a, a sort of a weaver, um, and uh, it's the Tejedor family, Jose Manuel Tejedor, uh, and his family, and uh, on that album, it's sort of like a gateway drug. I th- it was produced by Phil Cunningham, and it was in in two thousand. And on it was also uh, Michael McGoldrick. Funnily enough, 
He gets everywhere. I think he breaks into recording studios and adds his things on. He's, he's, uh, that's my little theory. He's on loads of things. But yeah, he was on there. And uh, so it's kind of a bit of a Celtic vibe. And that's what I've been looking at in my PhD research. So looking at that whole thing, there was a period of time in Astorius where they dabbled with a. In the 80s, 90s, 80s, they dabbled with the whole idea of being Celtic. So your research is is about Asturias and, and and is it about nationalism and and musical identity? Yeah, the grand title is the grand title is uh, a Celtic in inverted commas. Well, it's quite a controversial term, or national inverted commas aesthetic. National is quite controversial in Spain. So that's a Celtic or national aesthetic. Uh, wooden flute playing in the contemporary Astorian folk scene. So it looks out at, uses the flute, wooden flute as a lens uh, and performance on it to look at identity construction and how people have weaved and negotiated that around Celticness, Spanishness, Astorianness, and how it's expressed through performance on the flute. So, so that's, uh, um, I, I was, um, really struck by the fact that Kepa Chinkera is on is on your album and um I saw him play at Womad I don't know 20 years ago and for the first time and was completely blown away by that music and um and so to find him on your album was uh, absolute uh, just another another delight but um I I'm I'm curious about the um well, actually, I'll just be straight. What does the title of your of your thesis mean? I mean, what does that mean? Right. Well, when Kepa, you talk about negotiating put, identity, yeah, Kepa just to separate out. Go on. So he's not. I realize he's not from. He's he's from Bilbao, right? He's Basque. Yeah, yeah he's Basque. Yeah. So. So um, uh, go on. No, you you go ahead. Yeah. So the the yeah he's he's part of the story. So basically, the, the, how he ended up doing a story and stuff was. Uh, I was living in Ireland for a few years. I was director of the youth service in Donegal. I had a nervous breakdown. Hooray. Uh, and when I was recovering from that, I went and walked the Camino de Santiago, which is a pilgrim route across right. Spain. Uh, I walked from San jean pierre de Port in the Pyrenees in France and walked across to Santiago de Compostela and then to Finisterre. Um, and... Uh, while I was walking, I would have listened to a lot of Kepa Junquera because he's huge. Um, in terms of roots music in Spain, northern Spain, if you call it, uh, Kepa's huge. Uh, there's a few other, Carlos Nunes and Javier from um, Asturias. They'd have sold millions of albums. So that was a big sound. You should say as well, yeah, for anyone who's not familiar with him, he, he plays the... Triquetisha. So he plays the... It's accordion, yeah, but that's the Basque... Yeah, the bass version. Um, uh, yeah, he's amazing, and he's he's worked with all sorts of people and big soundscapes. You know, very inspirational for me for being ambitious about what's possible. Had to wait a year and a half for him to record it because he's so busy. Unfortunately, he's been ill. He had a stroke um, subsequently, so we didn't do any more work together. But was you know really pleased that he did that with me. He's recovering slowly, but anyway, huge hero. We went to see him live in Spain. Big fans. And actually, I couldn't believe that he recorded it. So I just liked his sound anyway. So that was just a big thrill. Um, but the Asturian thing, again, I was walking across Spain 
Uh, I met an American guy. We walked for a while. He met an Astorian woman. They fell in love. They got married. And I went to the wedding in Spain uh, a few years later. And uh, I was wandering around uh, the village town of Ariondas, uh, and where Paula's from. And uh, I could hear this music. And uh, I followed the music. And I went into this bar. And they were playing Astorian stuff. And then they were playing Michael McGoldrick. And then they were playing lots of Celtic stuff. I was like, wow. And then I got chatting to them. Didn't have much Spanish at the time. Said where I was from. And as soon as you say Mike, uh, Manchester, they go, oh, Michael McGoldrick. So they went, right, we'll go and get your flute. So they went and got me flute, had a few tunes, and then said, come back tonight. And they arranged a session. And it was in Tascarimaya, this session, uh, this bar, and uh, ran by a piper. And, uh, yeah, these musicians came from everywhere. And we had a lock-in till the morning. And it was the best night and I was hooked and I thought, I can't believe this. It's amazing. So uh, that was that was a bit where I thought, I'm going to do something with this. So when I decided to do the PhD, I thought, that's it. And I, mean, I was intrigued. I was intrigued, the idea about these multiple identities, the Celticness, what's that about? I was intrigued by a lot of them were Astorian nationalists. So they're looking, some of them were separatists um, who wanted a separate, Republic of Astorius. Astorius is in the north of Spain, sandwiched between Cantabria and Galicia. And it's on the Atlantic coast. Tiny, it's about a million people, depopulating, rural, largely a few industrial towns. And uh, I was intrigued by the identity construction. There was uh, p people saying, and then, so a lot of the musicians were quite into the language rights movement. So there's a language there called Astorian. It's not an official language. But that was a big part of their identity construction. And yet the people I was, my friends who were non-musicians were like, nationalists, a bit crazy. These people were Spanish, were Astorian, but were Spanish. So it's that whole thing about negotiating either as a regional uh, or national identity and how you make it up with being European. And then this whole thing about Celticness. Mm -hmm. But then that, that, that really seems to to bring us right back round to the ideas of Irish and English identity too right because the the when you talk about um in Querhawk about not quite fitting in or being on the edge um one of the things that I've often felt when I'm amongst expat Irish is that I've I've often felt like I don't fit in when I sense a a sort of very strong um militaristic nationalist sentiment being knocked about you know yeah and so i'm i'm just i'm curious about your exploration into that kind of um tendency in a different in a yeah different setting, it's, you know? it's yeah it's a i mean basically i don't like violence yeah i'm a lover not a fighter <laughs> you know? myself you know so um you know but uh yeah the 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 in terms of militant nationalism there, there was one short period of time, I think late 70s, early 80s, where they, uh, a small group got ETA, the Basque uh, yeah. terrorist yeah. or uh, separatist group, uh, to do a bank robbery with them. And then ETA buggered off with the money. So they were lo left looking a bit embarrassed. So the sort of, so it's never really been a, a sort of violent nationalism. Uh, and there's this whole hapless thing nationalism. Uh, yeah, quite hap they were quite hapless, uh, you know. And uh, so, it's 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 a funny old mixture because uh, that's the whole thing about. So in Spain, the narrative that 
was constructed by, especially during the Franco era, was that uh, Asturias was the birthplace of the Spanish nation. And they call it, it's basically uh, the place called Covadonga, where there's a big cathedral there and people go on pilgrimages too. And they call this thing Covadongismo or Guismo. Uh, and it's the idea that it was the place where the Moors uh, never got any further than Covadonga and they fought against the Moors and they drove them back. Uh, Peleo was the, he was chieftain or king, depending on how it's uh, described. So for the Spanish nationalists, not the Asturian nationalists, Covadonga and Asturias is an essential part of Spain. Without Asturias, there's no Spain. For the Asturian nationalists, they would have constructed a, a narrative around, you know, we've always been independent. We were a kingdom before Spain was a kingdom, you know, back to... Uh, 800 a little bit later than that yeah so that before spain existed um so they would have the same uh using the same basis but for a different construction of a different nationalism so there's there's it's a, a sort of an interesting tension in us in astorius and then uh so yeah it's it's and then you see the thing is with the irish thing is obviously if you're talking about diasporic identity so the Irish abroad, obviously, if you might have an equation with uh, or equate with the Asturians in South America, for example, or uh, in sort of the south of the United States. Um, uh, there's, and and you, you'll get uh, Asturian cultural centres around there. And uh, I've never been there, but I know fieldwork sources would have said to me that they're quite... Uh, not left of centre, put it that way, and quite busy and quite uh, right wing. So that experience might equate a little bit more with the experience of the Irish in Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a whole... So, so nationalism is very complicated. Different locations impact on it, different generations, different sexualities, different classes. There's a whole... It's it's complex. And then you've got the whole thing of, uh, of Celticity coming into... Asturias. Celticity. I was on the tip of my tongue. That seems like a whole other episode waiting to happen. Yeah, I mean, the the, 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 the quickest thing about that was after Franco disappeared, uh, died, and uh, there was trans, they call it the transition to democracy, uh, people were looking for different constructs of identity. And certainly a lot of the musicians, uh, Franco controlled a lot of the folklore, so they had the, his women's section, went around telling rural people in particular how to be rural and folkloric so a lot of folklore collection got tainted with fascism or with francoism so a lot of the young urban left-wing students who embraced the sort of folk music didn't want to be associated with that so they looked to the north and they saw what was happening in uh, Scotland with uh, uh, Tannehill weavers are huge in Asturias Uh, they looked to uh, Brittany and to Ireland uh, and they look for that kind of a construct. So they start playing with this idea of Celticity, which had, Celticness, which had been used as a label to sell things, as well as a, a, a political construct. Celticness never really went down in Ireland because they didn't. The the nationalists uh, didn't like the idea of the Celtic Romantic people in the nineteenth century because they were Protestant and a bit queer. So uh, right. so. 
so that whole thing was taken up and that's why they experimented with it and then the then the the, the celtic organizations the official organizations largely apart from lorion the big into celtic festival didn't accept the Astorians as Celtic because they use language yeah. as a guideline. So you had to have a Celtic or Gaelic language. Um, so that was all the other Celtic nations except Galicia and Asturias. So they were like, we fit in, we don't fit in. And uh, a lot of them just went, you know what, it's not who we are. And they started looking more into their reclaiming their folklore, returning to the countryside, using the Festinol sort of model from Brittany of dancing. So there's a whole fantastic scene there. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, uh, uh, a big queer theme there as well. Uh, read Lillis O'Leary's paper on queering the field on Irish music. That's very good. But in a story, that thing's happened. So a lot of uh, uh, gay men are taking a lead and performing what would have been traditional female roles, like playing the pandereta and singing for the dancing. If that's something that you could give us more info on or, or more reading material on, that'd be so great. Uh, I can put all, all that in the show notes. It's it's something that I'd love to uh, do a bit more reading on myself. I'm sure many other listeners would like to do that too. Yeah, happy to do that. I'm, I'm working on sticking an extra page on my website www.michaelwaltermusic.com or you can put a link into the Blarney Pilgrims um, so just say your website uh, again I will put it down in the show notes but just say the website again www.michaelwaltermusic.com and Michael where's the best place to buy your music buy my well michaelwaltermusic.com uh, uh, Bandcamp, you'll find me on there, and uh, all the usual streaming places. If you're in uh, Ireland and you want a physical copy, you can go to Cladder Records. They they're online as well. Uh, Custis, um, Mulvey's Gift Shop in Carrick and Shannon, a couple of miles from the Shores of Lock Brown. They've got some copies. Uh, yeah, so you can get it there. Good idea, given the names of local shops. I'm actually in the process at the moment of looking for local shops around Drogheda to buy Christmas presents and that kind of thing. You know, it's funny, the the local shops, because they're small in nature, they don't have a web presence compared to the multinationals. And you kind of, you look for gifts in a local area and before you know, you end up back in Amazon. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to support local businesses. So I'll, I'll put those in the show notes. Yeah. So support them, but if you want to get direct money to me, uh, get on my website. Bandcamp and your website. Well, look, thank you so much for this evening, Michael. Really, really appreciate it and really enjoyed it. Do you think we could go out on one last song or tune maybe? Uh, Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Cheers, lads. It was an absolute uh, pleasure talking about myself. It's my favourite subject. No, but great questions too. And I've really enjoyed the other podcasts as well. Uh, just getting underneath the stories. That's fascinating stuff. So uh, good job, Thank gents. You. So Thanks. I'm going to go back and uh, wash up now. So uh, let me think. I'll play. Uh, I'm going to do a couple of jigs. I love my jigs. Right, Paddy's Return, Trip to Athlone. Great St. Wilfred's Colters tune. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
So, Darren, I, um, as you know, I don't get that excited about albums these days. I'll, I'll testify to that. I send him many things and he... And I'm like, hmm? Just tumbleweeds. But this album, f- for lots of different reasons, hopefully I've, at least partly evident from that conversation, this album, I'm listening to it over and over again, and I love it. I love the way it's recorded. I love the the fact that you can hear his his breath. But I don't know, there's, there's just a whole... You know, sometimes you come across um, a piece of art where the constituent parts just fit together to make this incredible, coherent whole. Mm-hmm. That's what that album is. It's I phenomenal. I didn't really say it enough in there. I think Michael said it and he said, you know, concept albums can be trite or whatever. And you know what? poorly conceived or poorly executed ones can be this is an example of a start to end concept album that works and that's for me what i really endure about it it doesn't happen that often particularly in this genre i don't i don't know a lot because I'm, I'm still relatively new but i don't know a lot of concept albums that take it to that extent and still deliver, like deliver. yeah yeah absolutely I, I i didn't approach this even knowing that it, and this is a mark of how subtly it's done and how brilliantly it's done that I didn't approach this with any uh, foreknowledge of um, the sort of thematic things that you wanted to talk about about male relationships and fathers and sons and stuff but the cumulative effect of listening to these tracks in sequence is uh, just so powerful and so emotional and uh, um, yeah and I think what it's a mark too, of what a brilliant piece it is because that's conceptual we keep on talking about the concept side of it I think one of the things that I really enjoy, I, think I said it to you before we started the interview, starting with that track on the record on the acetate, it's reminiscent of the old 78s, something that could have been recorded at the start of the century. So essentially the most traditional thing you could you could find when you think of the tradition to then go straight into something like Queer Hawk, snap you out of the tradition while still making you acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. And then it just it, I really enjoy how he takes me in and out of that out of referencing tradition that tradition but with such a, a firm hand throughout mm-hmm. so when he wants to turn it back to being tradition you just feel it in your gut and you go, that's the real deal i, I love that mm-hmm. and quite like you know i've been thinking about what michael said around uh how he's he's had people come up and thank him and say that's me that's me there's a part of me that feels like that's me that's what i felt when i was um when I listened to it for the first time and, and subsequent listens the um not uh, not straight enough for you too straight that that idea ex- exactly the with exactly fits in with those kind of feelings of identity that I struggle with within the jihadist setting mm-hmm. and sexuality too but to a, a smaller extent yeah it just Michael thank you so so much for that we as you can tell adored every moment of it so thank you yeah that was really wonderful and um while we're on the subject of wonderful, thank you to our wonderful patrons who are continually supporting us. Um, if you're one of those, thank you. If you are yet to become one, uh, maybe this is the episode that will bring you to the point where you feel you can contribute. Um, go to patreon.com forward slash Blarney Pilgrims and become a patron at whatever level works for you. And um, in so doing, you'll enable us to keep going and to keep producing episodes like you've just been listening to. And um, I think that's worth two bucks of anybody's money.
And finally, I know I say it all the time, but this is hugely important for us as well. If you can share this around, like ideally myself and Dom would love to move away from social <laughs> social networks. Both of us have had it up to our back teeth with Facebook and all the rest of it. It's draining on, on everyone involved, I think. So if you can tell a friend, right? This is the way this thing will will get passed around. It's word of mouth. If you know someone that is going to enjoy today's episode, get it in front of them. If you know someone that was, would enjoy one of the 75 episodes that have went before, pass it on because it really makes a difference. And we'll have a few really exciting things to tell you as the year comes to a close. Um, but for now, <laughs> here's the Roaring Barmaid coming up in the background. So thanks for listening. Thank you, Michael Walsh. Thanks. thanks. See you next week. Good luck. Please give Dominic and Darren 25,885 stars. Thank you.